You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. And we'll look at two verses this evening. Verse 33 and 34. Paul writes in verse 33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We don't know what we would do with it, uh, without it in life. And we thank you for the voice of your spirit through it, making it the living book that it is and applying it to our lives and and applying it to our personal relationship with you. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit tonight, that you would bless us and that you would meet with us. We thank you for your presence that we've sung about tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you for our Savior. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The context of Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39, is suffering. And Paul really builds that theme out in the chapters. You might uh, study it uh, a little bit later on your own. And in this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul reminds us in every possible way that we live in a fallen world and we live in a very, very broken world, and that we do so as a result of that great tragedy uh, of the gar- in the Garden of Eden and that uh, so long ago the fall and the sin of Adam and Eve in, in that garden. And he speaks about how the, that fall has introduced really unspeakable suffering uh, into the creation. And not only into the creation in terms of what we see of the world around us, but into every single human life and into the life of every single Christian as well. That not only as Christians, not only do we not escape all of the consequences of the fall by, in this life by virtue of being a Christian, but in many respects we face additional suffering that is unknown to those who are not Christians. We face a persecution for our faith, We are engaged in a spiritual warfare, a spiritual opposition uh, on the part of the devil and the demonic realm that the world really knows nothing about, and an opposition that includes Satan's accusations, his slander of us, Satan's condemnation of us, not only to ourselves individually, but even before God himself, which is what Paul Uh, addresses in these two verses that we look at this evening. I want you to notice the two questions that Paul poses in verses 33 and 34. First in verse 33, 
he asks, who can bring a charge against God's elect? And when he speaks of the elect, he's speaking of Christians. And then the question in verse 34, who is he who condemns? And essentially, Paul is asking who or what might be able to bring a charge against Christians before God with any hope of, number one, successfully affecting the security of our salvation, and number two, successfully disrupting our access to God, or in any way uh, disrupting the intimacy of our relationship with God. And the reason that Paul wants to reassure us concerning those questions is that because he knows, being a Christian himself, of course, he knows that if we ever come to believe that any accuser, including the devil, that they could be successful in changing God's mind about our salvation or in some way affect uh, our intimacy with God, the grace-based access that we have to God, that it would have the potential to sink us as Christians into hopelessness and into condemnation given all of the other things that we face and that we have to deal with uh, in, in life. Who could withstand all of the other hardships in life as a Christian if on top of all of those hardships we cannot be absolutely confident that our sins are forgiven by God. It is important to understand that the imagery that Paul uses in these two verses is an image that all of us are very, very familiar with. The image that he's wanting to produce within our mind is that of a courtroom and uh, in which we sit as a defendant. And not only do we sit in that courtroom as a defendant, but we sit as a defendant who is entirely guilty. God the Father is the judge. Uh, Satan is the accuser in that uh, courtroom, the prosecuting attorney. And Jesus sits in that same courtroom as our advocate, as our defense attorney. And with that in mind, then, we return to those two questions. First, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Again, when he uses the term elect, he is speaking about us as Christians. The word charge that Paul uses here, it means to bring a charge against, uh, to call uh, to account, or to accuse. And so there is, on, on one hand, the answer to that question, who can bring a charge against God's elect, uh, is, well, just about anybody can. Uh, for the simple reason that as Christians, while we are forgiven, we're not perfect. And try as we might, we still sin, and, and one day in heaven's glory we will not, but here and now we do. And I know that there are some Christians that adhere to a doctrine of uh, sinless perfection, uh, the idea that somehow in this life as Christians we can attain to a sinless perfection and uh, achieve uh, complete maturity spiritually in this life. And I absolutely believe that the Bible teaches that we have been provided with all that we need as Christians to achieve sinless perfection in this life. But that the Bible teaches just as fully that none of us will. 
when Jesus taught uh, the disciples how to pray, and he, he did so at their request, and what came out of his teaching to them in light of their request was what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And one of the lines in that Lord's Prayer is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We know that that prayer is intended to be a daily prayer because the, the line immediately before it uh, says, give us this day our daily bread. And so here is Jesus' instruction concerning how uh, the, the sins that we commit on a daily basis and regarding the sins that are committed against us, that we're to ask God for the forgiveness of our sins on a daily basis and then to extend forgiveness to those who've sinned against us on a daily basis. And when we uh, properly understand, sometimes I run into people who are greatly offended at God's assessment of them and us as being sinners. And uh, almost always that's a reflection on a misunderstanding of what it means to be a sinner. To be a sinner is simply to be less than perfect. It is to miss the mark. It is to be less than perfect in our actions or in our speech, uh, in our thinking, uh, in our motives, uh, even to know to do good and to fail to do it, the Bible teaches, uh, is, is to sin. And, uh, and, 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 and th this is the definition of it. I think when we know the definition of it, there, there can hardly be any uh, complaint at all. And when we understand the definition of sin, even as Christians, there's not a single one of us that comes to the end of a single day where we would lay our head down on the pillow and say, Lord, I would uh, love to confess some sin to you. But in every action and in every word, in every thought, and in every motive, I have been exactly as Jesus would have done, uh, been. And so we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, no, we, we know when we understand the standard uh, that we are sinners and we sin on a daily basis. Now back to who can bring a charge against God's elect. Well, the devil can. And uh, he can do so on the basis of actual uh, fact. Because in each of our lives, we provide him with ample opportunity and, and accusations of uh, for sin and wrongdoing, to take before God uh, against us. And he, and he loves to do it. He gets the name, the accuser of the brethren, from this as a result of his work in this regard. But he isn't alone in this. Other people can do the same. Uh, you take any spouse, you take any son, any uh, daughter, any parent, any fellow student, any co-worker uh, can do the same. In fact, just about everyone uh, who were around for any significant time at all in life, they'll witness us falling short of, of the standard of God's Word and of Jesus' life and, and of His teaching. And then our own consciences uh, accuse us. Our own hearts uh, accuse us. And no one but God is more aware of our sins and our shortcomings than we are ourselves. And uh, as the old saying goes, each of us is a sinner by nature and by choice, and we're fully aware of it. 
As another old saying goes, uh, each and every one of us is far worse than anything we will ever do or think. And we know that to be the truth about ourselves. But when Paul raises this question here, he's not merely asking who shall bring a charge against God's elect. The idea is who can do so before God and do so successfully. And as we'll see in just a moment, the answer is is that no one can. Notice the second question, who is he who condemns? The word condemn here means to condemn. It means to render a verdict of guilt uh, and then uh, subject to punishment. And again, Paul is not merely saying, who is he who condemns? But the idea is, who can bring a charge before God against a Christian with any hope of securing God's condemnation of us? Again, in the sense of successfully affecting the security of our salvation or successfully disrupting our access to God, our intimacy uh, and relationship with, with God. Well, even uh, that then raises the question. If we are imperfect and we are guilty before God as sinners, then how is it that our sin and our guilt does not translate into successful charges being made against us resulting in our condemnation? And that's the question that Paul answers in these two verses. And Paul gives us a tremendous revelation here into five great truths, five great realities that the devil or any accuser runs into when seeking to condemn us as Christians before God. I think of it as this great a series of five walls Uh, that uh, God has placed between us and condemnation. And Paul describes those five walls to us here in in terms of that security in these two verses. Notice first that Paul writes, it is God who justifies in verse 33. In other words, that for all of our faults, we have been justified by God. And justification means more than merely, if I can use that word concerning anything related to God, it's, it's, it's more than merely being forgiven of our sins. Justification speaks to the fact that as Christians, God has not only forgiven us and taken away the guilt and the penalty associated with our sin, but he has further clothed, clothed us with Jesus' righteousness. So that now when he views us as Christians, he sees us just as if we had never sinned. And we now possess a righteous standing before God. And Paul goes back to this theme continually in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a familiar verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he that is the Father made him that is Jesus, 
who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when we put our faith in Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is put to our account. And now when God sees us, he does not see our unrighteousness, but clothed in Jesus' perfect righteousness, he now views us as if we had never sinned. And this is how God views us positionally. Our growth as Christians, our sanctification, that's an up and down uh, process at times in this, this pilgrimage. But justification never changes in our lives as Christians. It never changes with the ups and downs of, of, of the world or our own lives. God's view of us in this regard never changes. God's justification of us as Christians reveals, and the point that Paul is making here is it reveals that God has no interest in playing any part in our condemnation at all. And every single time the devil brings an accusation against any of us, he is informed of our justification. Every time Satan brings an accusation against you before God, this is what he runs into. God refuses to participate in the condemnation, and he remains absolutely just in doing so based upon Jesus' sacrifice for our sins and your faith in Jesus. God is satisfied in this regard. It is hard for the prosecuting attorney to have any success in a court of law if the judge refuses to participate in any way in the condemnation of the defendant. And how wonderful it is to realize that God Almighty will both now and forever refuse to participate in our condemnation. And to that we say hallelujah. And it's absolutely true. The second wall that Paul speaks of is in verse 34 where he declares it is Christ who died. In other words, Paul is saying that if Jesus died in order to pay the full and satisfying price for the forgiveness of our sins, and willing to do so at such enormous expense to himself, now that we have embraced his salvation, then Jesus himself has absolutely no interest in playing any part in our condemnation as well. As Jesus declared to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Famously, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on and said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so Paul is declaring in this context that not only will the father not play any part in our condemnation, but Jesus will not do so either. I do think that it's important to understand this was very helpful for me. I couldn't, I heard it early as a Christian, and I couldn't, the earlier the better. And it's a familiar truth for many of us, but, and you may be hearing it for the tenth time, but somebody else in the room would be hearing it for the first time, just like when you heard it for the first time, others were hearing it for the tenth time. 
This is how it goes <laughs> in, a, in a church family. But I remember having explained to me early on the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the devil. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit does convict us uh, of our sins, and it's a wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, within our lives. But when he convicts us of our sin, he always does so in a way that produces a desire to then repent of that sin, confess it to God, and, and then be restored to, uh, you, you know, the, the being released and receiving that forgiveness then from God and, and the blessings that come with forgiveness. The condemnation of the devil is entirely uh, different and when he tries to, that he tries to use against us when we've sinned and failed, and he, and he attempts to accomplish the exact opposite. And the condemnation of the devil, we're all very familiar with this, is that the moment that we sin, that he comes in on the scene and he'll always try to drive us away uh, from God as a result of our sin and our failure and to say, look at what it is that you have done. Uh, do you think that you can just turn around after you did that, after you just said that, and ask God for forgiveness and that he's just going to forgive you for that? There's no way he's going to do that. You need to lay low for several days. Maybe he'll forget a little bit, and uh, then you can approach him and, uh, and try. Or worse yet, when he comes to us and says, you'll, uh, you, you can never turn back to God after uh, what you've done. He's through with you. He'll never have anything to do with you again. And the devil always tries to make us feel hopeless and, and condemn in order always to drive us away from God with the intent then that he will, in that isolated kind of condition, then uh, work very hard uh, to, to uh, destroy us. And so uh, if you sin and you have that conviction and a desire to make, get right with God again, that's always the Holy Spirit at work in, in your life, in our lives. It's not the devil. But if you sin and you have this sense of condemnation or a sense that I can't turn to God immediately and receive his forgiveness, that's never the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's always the, the devil at work. Uh, and uh, uh, we can turn back to God in an instant. Now, the, the third wall that Paul describes here is in verse 34 as well. And, and, and it's, it's found in, in the phrase, it is Christ who is, furthermore, uh, who is furthermore also risen. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the evidence that the Father accepted Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. By by Jesus' death, by his death, he paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But the question is, how were we as human beings to know that that sacrifice was acceptable uh, to the Father related to the forgiveness of sins? And the answer of Scripture is the resurrection. Again, the resurrection is the evidence that the Father has accepted the perfect sacrifice of his Son for the forgiveness of our sin. Paul brings it out in Romans as well. And speaking of Jesus in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, who was delivered up because of uh, our offenses and was raised because of our justification. 
And here Paul declares that every Christian is under the protection of this resurrected Jesus concerning uh, condemnation. Paul says forth in verse 34, Jesus is even at the right hand of the Father. And this speaks of Jesus' power in heaven. This speaks of his authority in that heavenly scene. It speaks of the honor that is his in that, that heavenly scene. And Paul is declaring that every Christian is under the protection of this glorified Jesus against the condemnation of the devil. Uh, Jesus declared in this regard in John chapter 6, he said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. Fifth and finally, in verse 34, Paul declares that Jesus makes intercession for us. In other words, as he occupies the seat at the right hand of the Father in the glory of heaven, that he, he is in constant intercession for us as Christians. And I have no doubt that his intercession takes many, many forms uh, from that particular place in in uh, heaven. But one of the forms of that intercession that occurs there, Paul alludes to here, and that is Jesus' role as our advocate, as our defense attorney against any and all charges made against us concerning sins that we have committed, or calls for our condemnation uh, on the base of those sins by the devil. And, and it, this aspect of Jesus' ministry on our behalf is written uh, about by the Apostle John in his first epistle. Most of you will recognize it, verse John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate with the Father. The word advocate there, it is the parakletos, uh, uh, parakleton specifically, one who comes alongside to help. And you might ask yourself, uh, how complicated is Jesus' defense of us in that heavenly scene before the accusations of the devil? Well, it's not complicated at all. Uh, As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when each charge and, and, and resulting call for condemnation is presented by the devil to God the Father against us, in that great courtroom, every eye at that point turns to Jesus, who then responds something like, yes, the charge about them is absolutely true, but charge it to my account, I died for that sin to be forgiven. And in that heavenly scene, that is the end of it. And if the devil's attempts at condemning us before God are completely unsuccessful in the realm of heaven, then why would we give them any weight when he tries to sink us into condemnation with those same devices in, in accusations in 
in this, this life. Or we try to defend ourselves against his condemnations when we have uh, such an amazing advocate, such an amazing uh, defense attorney. No, Paul is saying, leave your case with Jesus and don't attempt to plead it uh, yourself. It's not needed. And so instead, when we sin, we should repent of our sin. We should turn from it and then confess our sin to God and ask for his forgiveness and then receive that forgiveness, uh, confess my sin to any significant others that I have uh, sinned against and been affected by my sin and make restitution where, where that's appropriate in all of this and then learn from the sin, learn from the failure and then move forward in our Christian life and in our Christian service. Again, First uh, John chapter 1, the Apostle John, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That famed Christian bar of soap that we need to wash up with regularly. So once again, here is the great, impenetrable, God-erected, five-fold, five-walled defense, as Paul describes it, that stands between any accusation that can be made against us before God that would, uh, that would you ever attempt to produce condemnation from God related to our salvation or our personal relationship with him. Again, number one, it is my God who has justified me. In other words, God the Father simply will not participate in our condemnation. It is Jesus himself who died for our sins. Jesus himself will not participate in our condemnation. Number three, it is Jesus who has risen from the dead as a demonstration of his authority to forgive our sins. And number four, it is Jesus, our Savior, who sits at the right hand of God possessing a power, possessing an authority that is greater, infinitely greater than anyone who will ever bring an accusation before, uh, against us before the throne of God. And then number five, that he now uses that position of ultimate authority and power to defend us from every charge and condemnation of the devil or of others. And again, we say praise the Lord for that from this place tonight. Let's give the Lord a blessing. Now, uh, like all of the Bible, the Bible needs to be taught. It needs to be read, it needs to be explained, and it needs to uh, be applied. So I've endeavored to do that uh, this evening. I also think always, but certainly with a subject like this tonight, that just a few minutes of prayerful worship is, is helpful in making sure that this is something as we leave this place experientially between us and God, this isn't just something that we know in our heads, but it is something that we apply to our own personal relationship with God. 
and to respond to this incredible truth that there is no charge or condemnation that the devil or anyone can bring against us that will in any way affect the security of our salvation or in any way cause God to distance himself from us or to shun us. And so I just ask in the privacy of our, all of our own hearts here tonight, if there's a sin in your distant past or your recent past that you have never confessed to God and received his forgiveness, then tonight's a good time to do that. And then to leave your defense uh, with, with the Lord. And then if you're a Christian here tonight and there's some great sin from your past that continues to torment you, continues to condemn you, and the devil has used it to keep you from walking confidently as a Christian, walking confidently in God's forgiveness, in his love for you, and boldly in your Christian life, then tonight I think one of the things that we want want this passage to do and reason I'm teaching it this evening is for tonight to become a reference point where you commit that to God and you for the rest of your life now by the grace of God and I'll meet you here by his Holy Spirit and for the rest of your life you you receive that forgiveness and you commit your that defense uh, related to that uh, completely and in, entirely uh, to to the Lord, and for this night to 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 be that, including those accusations not only of the devil but the accusations that we can uh, bring against ourselves, and to leave them with God forever. And as fully as we've received Jesus' salvation, we need to receive His forgiveness, and then receive the uh, uh, allow Him to operate in the capacity that he is solely equipped for, solely qualified for, and that is to be our defense against all condemnation. The condemnation that we feel in this world as Christians, it's important to realize it is not real in heaven. It doesn't exist there. It exists in our heads. It exists because we're uh, believing a lie. You think about who, uh, and when I look at this passage, these two, two verses, and, and what Paul has laid out here, I, th- I think we'd, we would, it wouldn't quite have the impact, even as powerful as it is, unless we stop and think about the man that God used to write these verses in the book of Romans. Paul was a savage. He was a beast. He's beloved to us as a Christian. But he imprisoned Christian men and women without a second thought at all. He had the blood of Christians on his hands, played a part in the martyrdom and the death of the early church, intent 100% upon destroying Christianity and destroying Christians. Think about the kind of guilt. Think about the kind of shame 
that if Paul was not confident in the truths that he writes here, would have kept him from ever becoming uh, what he became in the Lord. And if these truths could cause the Apostle Paul to be absolutely bold for the rest of his life in God's forgiveness, then surely they're intended to do the same for us. And maybe you sit here tonight and you say, well, I'm quite current with the Lord on this particular issue. So I'll give you a meditation as well. And to just stop and think about what God's forgiveness means in our lives. Think about what has been lifted off of us that we don't carry one week into the next week, one month into the next month, one year into the next year, one day into the next day, simply because of the greatness of this Savior and the greatness of his forgiven, for, uh, forgiveness. It is an amazing thing to be a forgiven people and how blessed we are. So let's praise him. Let's worship him tonight. I, I do believe my heart was directed to this passage and I do believe that the Holy Spirit wants to meet with, maybe it's one in, it's one in the 99, no. But I'll tell you, it's worth, it's worth it to me. I know it's worth it to you as a Christian. If one person can leave here freed tonight from the torment that I think all of us are familiar with at the hands of the devil, we will be happy for what the Holy Spirit has done this evening. So let's, uh, let's continue to worship the Lord and allow the ministry of God's Holy Spirit to continue in our midst in this wonderful, wonderful vein. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Damian Kyle. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Damian's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.